Well, good morning. Great to see you here this morning. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to read uh, today's text together. So if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles over here on the right-hand side. Feel free to, to grab one. We're going to be reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV, this morning. So if you'd like to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8, starting at uh, verse 11. Uh, For the Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy at all, this people cause conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honour as holy. Let him be your fear, and let let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offence and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Behold... I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and uh, portions in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on the Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and they, they are hungry. They will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who, has, who was in anguish in the former time, He brought him to content the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. On the increase of his government and on the peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading. It's interesting, I don't know, but uh, as we go about each week and we turn on our different news channels, there's nothing but horrible news. 
I'm sure you've noticed that in the, in the past week our news has been incredibly grim. Internationally, we have terror that continues to disrupt peace. We have mass shootings. They seem to be the norm. And locally, we read consistently about rapes and murders. Wars continue to rage, and men and women throughout the globe continue to willingly leave God out of their lives. When we consider that in our own week, it is a grim reality of what goes on around about us. But you know, as we've read this text, nothing has really changed for the past 3,000 years. I guess it's only really in today's age and the speed of communication and the technology on our fingertips that we get to see these willful acts of disobedience quickly. We get to see the heart of man being displayed in its horror. Because that's the issue, isn't it? At the end of the day, it's not the medium by which things happen. It's actually driven by man's heart that things happen. So the story of disobedience uh, leading to acts of evil is not new. The cause of this type of violence and senseless hate isn't the weapons or things that are used in that act, but it's the heart of people. A heart of people that utterly reject God in their lives. We have read a portion of scripture today from Isaiah. These verses were penned in 640 BC, close on 3,000 years ago. And Isaiah was a prophet who God ordained to proclaim a message to a people who knew better. He was a prophet who was raised up by God to pronounce warnings and judgment upon a disobedient people. Because, you know, God's people were designed to worship him. God's people were designed to follow some laws and statutes and commands that would bless them all the days of their life. However, we see as we read the Old Testament, as we read massive portions of Scripture here, that they struggled with this dichotomy of honouring God on one hand and honouring man on the other. As a nation, they seem to be stuck in this cycle of consistent disobedience, which resulted in judgment, which resulted in repentance, which resulted in restoration. A cycle of disobedience resulting in judgment, moving the people to repentance and restoration with their God. And as we read this prophecy 
today, we'll see elements of that. We see a very special historical element because Isaiah is speaking to a king. He's speaking to the king Ahaz. And you can start reading the story in in chapter 7. Now, as you're aware, the, the nation was split in two. Israel's nation was split in two. We had the northern kingdoms called Israel and we had the southern Davidic kingdoms called Judah. And Ahaz was a king ruling over Judah, over the southern nation. You can read about him in Second uh, Kings chapter 16 and you might like to turn there with me just briefly. So we read a few verses about Ahaz. In 2 Kings, we get a, like a resume of this king. 2 Kings 16, you have all his acts displayed for everyone to see. Not a very nice resume. I shall just go back to 15 because chapter 15, where it talks about his father, Jotham. There's one thing that uh, the Word of God is very sure about when they rate their kings. The two elements that they rate is he was either good in the sight of the Lord or he was evil. No black and white, no in between. This is the way the book of Kings rates kings. So Ahaz's father was Jotham. In verse 34 it tells us, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according all to his father Uzziah had done. So we have a combination of, of Ahaz's father. Then we have a summary of Ahaz's reign. Verse 2 of chapter 16. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in a way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his own son as an offering, according to the despicable practice of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. That's a summary of Ahaz's reign. You can read further on what happens, but if you'd like to turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 7, this is contextually is where we are today with this prophecy. Isaiah was raised up by God to warn Judah and warn his king Ahaz here in this first instant that he was running from God. Isaiah 7, verse 3, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz. You're in Sherebahath, your son, at the end of the conduit, the upper pool of the highway to the washer's field, and say to him. So Isaiah, say to Ahaz these things, Be careful. Be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smouldering stumps of fire bands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remelah. So what was going on in Ahaz's kingdom and he was increasingly under pressure by surrounding nations. Syria and Egypt And what we find later in his life is actually he does a bit of a deal on the side with the Assyrians. Come and help us out. But God has that all in plan. 
and uses the Assyrians to actually discipline the nation. So that's contextually where we're at in this book of Isaiah. And we see this communication given to Isaiah. Let's listen, let's walk through this together and discover some amazing things, firstly about God's justice and secondly about God's grace. Remember I said I started that there seems to be a cycle right through the Old Testament. Disobedience, judgment, repentance, restoration. And this is what we see happening here. So verse 11 of chapter 8, we've read it already, I just want to make some notes for you. For the Lord spoke to me, speaking to Isaiah, with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. Isaiah, be strong, be of courage, do not walk the way Ahaz is walking. Do not do the things that are attractive to the people of Judah. And he particularly talks about conspiracies here. He says, don't be concerned about the conspiracies. We're not specifically told what the conspiracies might be, but as we read the context around Ahaz and all he did, it could be the conspiracy of uh, Rezin and Pekah against him, Syria and Egypt. He's saying, Isaiah, don't be concerned about the nations rising up against you. Don't be concerned about that particular conspiracy, perhaps. Maybe it's the conspiracy where Ahaz started doing a deal with the Assyrians. Isaiah, don't be concerned about that. Maybe it was a conspiracy personally against Isaiah and his followers, the disciples. Maybe they were concerned that Isaiah was planning conspiracy against the nation. Maybe it was a conspiracy about a potential internal coup to dispose of Ahaz, which we read about in chapter 7. But we don't actually know what the conspiracy is, but what we do know is the Lord instructs Isaiah pretty, pretty clearly. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be consumed, if you like, by the tittle-tattling of those around you. Because I, the Lord of hosts, verse 13, I, the Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts has this, this meaning, I am the Lord Almighty. It's a military term. I'm over and above and beyond anything that you can conceive. I, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, honour me. Let me be your fear. Let me be your dread. But as you read verse 13, you also see a real key here. He says, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honour as what? As holy. Now you may not understand the impression that may have had on Isaiah unless you go back to chapter 6. Because when Isaiah was commissioned 
to go out and proclaim against the kings of the nations. God gave Isaiah a vision. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, turn there with me. She was at verse 1. In the, in the year King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. This is Isaiah. Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, for the whole earth is full of his glory. So when we come to chapter 8 and we read these verses and when Isaiah has been instructed by the strong hand of the Lord, remember him as holy. This vision would be into his mind. We should not underestimate what we see in Scripture. Scripture doesn't often repeat terms in a triplicate fashion. So when it says holy, 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 be assured it's holy. And that's the impression that we see as as Isaiah sees the vision of the Lord of glory sitting on his throne. And as the Lord speaks to him concerning what is about to happen and what is to come, he says, don't fear the tittle-tattling of nations around about you. Don't fear the conspiracy theories. But honour me as holy. Let me be your fear and awe and dread. Because I will be your sanctuary. I will be your sanctuary. The sanctuary means that the Lord will be his solid strength, a place of refuge. However, for those who don't fear the Lord, i.e. in Isaiah's case, probably 90% of Judah, those who don't fear him, he would become a rock to stumble over. Like a snare or like a trap. That's the type of allegory this is. So don't be like that Isaiah. Remember the vision you've seen. Remember I am holy. And as a follower of me, you need to think about the consequences of failure to treat me as holy. Because the consequences in this context are I will become the opposite. A stumbling stone. A place of judgment. And then we have Isaiah's response. Verse 16. 
Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. What a wonderful response. Isaiah has understood the lesson that God is holy. God has things in control. Even though the nation is inherently against him, even though Ahaz is wicked to the core. Did you get it when I read about Ahaz's uh, first summary? What was the first thing that came out about his life? He sacrificed his son. Human sacrifice of his son to worship the gods of Baal. This is the type of evil Isaiah is, is talking to against and against. And he says, let's remember this testament. Let's bind this testament. Let's bind this revelation as a source of comfort and hope. Because I will wait for the Lord. I will hope in him. I'd like to add a few more words to that. I will confidently wait. I will confidently trust. Both the terms he uses here express confidence and full assurance, not partial assurance, full assurance that God will be with him and that these prophecies will be fulfilled. And then he uses his own family as a sign of the the promise that God is giving. And then he reinstates the truth of God's word. Verse 19 and 20. He says, you know, the people, the people are going to say to you, why don't you go to the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter? Isn't that a beautiful way of describing it? Witches, sorcerers. Mediums, they just chirp and mutter. Why don't you go to them? Why don't you, you know, this is what the people will say to Isaiah, go to them and get your future storytelling. And look at Isaiah's response. He does it with a couple of rhetorical questions. Why should these people inquire, should not these people inquire of their God? And then a very other, very natural thing, why should they inquire of the dead about the living? Makes no sense to him. Because the only thing that is true, verse 20, is the teaching and the testimony of God. And then he draws this major conclusion here. If they do not honour, if they do not speak to God's word, if they do not understand his laws that have been governing this nation for centuries for the purpose of blessing, then they are living in darkness. They are living in darkness. They have no dawn, the ESV says. They are living in darkness. See, folks, the choice has always been there for the nation, for us. We can either fear and trust God 
and have him lift up our countenance, so to speak, so that we receive his blessing. Numbers chapter 6, 24 and 27 talks about that. Or we can reject God and have him hide his favour and reap the penalty. What Isaiah does here, he chooses to follow God. He chooses to uphold God's testimony, God's word, God's truth as authentic. He chooses to wait upon his Lord. He chooses to hope in his Lord. He chooses to trust in him with great confidence. He chooses not to listen to the conspiracies. He chooses not to be swayed by the popular opinion of the day relating to what will happen in the future. But he chooses to trust God. Because he knows God's word is the only source of light. He knows God's testimony and teaching are true. For him, God's God's past revelation, the word of God, through the Torah, is the only valid guide to judge when it comes to new wisdom about the future. And then we see in the balance of chapter 8 the result of those who walk in darkness. They will be distressed. They will be hungry. They will be enraged. They will curse, speaking contemptuously against their king and their God. They will turn their face upwards. They will be in darkness, distress and gloom and anguish. Pretty descriptive terms. But these are terms that are relevant when you have a life without a saviour. These terms are relevant when you willfully choose to walk from God. So what do we learn from this little section? I think a couple of things. People do not treat God as holy and fear him. They'll end up fearing man and his power. That's a pretty pertinent thing for us today. I ask you as you make decisions in life, as you go about your daily duties, Do you fear God in that or do you fear man? Are you like Isaiah who waits patiently? Are you like Isaiah who puts his total hope and trust in God? Or are you like the bulk of the people here who are following Ahaz? Follow conspiracy theories. Follow the next wave of philosophy perhaps. Follow the next part of humanism just mould into society's general rules about 
marriage, perhaps, and other ethical issues which are clearly spelled out in God's word. Do you and I treat God as holy? Do we fear him and awe him above all? That's a challenge I've received as I've read through this. Where do I compromise? Where do I move away from truth? Because the warning is clear to this people, to Judah, when they rejected God and his word, there was no other source of light. None whatsoever. They would walk around in darkness. You read verses 21 and 22. That's what they're doing. They're walking around in darkness, in anguish, in distress. So life without God leads to destruction, painful distress, and darkness. So where do you put yourself on that continuum? Do you fear God? Do you trust his promises? Do you trust that his precious saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to this earth and died for your sin? To restore a relationship? To satisfy God's wrath? So that you could be in relationship with the God of eternity? The great I am, am. The one that was explained here is holy, holy, holy. So when we read God's word, understand it as his truth, we understand it as light. If we accept his promises, we walk in the light. Jesus even himself said in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Let's move on. To me, this next part is astounding. Even though judgment is pronounced, repentance will occur, we have restoration and grace. Look at verse 9. But there will be no gloom for, for her who was in anguish. From the former time, he brought into content the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. From the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The Lord's referring back to a time where these two parts of Israel, Naphtali and Zebulun, were brought into great distress, into great destruction, but they have been freed. They have been restored. And then it continues. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. That's the power of the gospel message, folks. God provides light in darkness. To this nation... He was providing 
light in darkness through his promises of blessing. To us as people post the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, he promises light in a dark world. In a dark world that is consistently full of murder, hate, turmoil, there is light, and that's in the person and work of Jesus. Let's read on. You have multiplied the nation. Specifically here, he's talking to Judah. This is a future promise. Even though at the moment you're about to go into massive destruction and judgment, you will be multiplied. And your joy will be increased. Now, this is not just some partial increase here. It would be probably a better rendering that it is increased beyond your wildest imagination. You will rejoice because you'll rejoice like you had a, a bumper harvest. You'll rejoice because you will have food to burn. You'll rejoice because the burden, the oppression of the nations coming around about you will be shattered and broken. Verse 4. Shattered and broken as on the day of Midian. What happened on the day of Midian? Go back to Judges 6 and 7. That's the story of Gideon. What happened when Gideon's army came down to surround the Midianites? What did they do? They tortured, right? They shattered and broke the clay jar and they blew a trumpet. This is the imagery he's bringing in here. Just like in the days of Gideon, your oppressors will be completely destroyed. They'll be shattered and broken. And the very armor you'll use as fuel for your fire. So even nations will come against you. Nations will come in judgment against you. At my hand, I will restore. And I will restore abundantly. And why will this happen? Because God has promised it. God has promised it. And then we move into a great messianic prophecy. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. A child will be born, a son will be given. Don't underestimate that statement. A gift of the Messiah. A son is given. By whom? By God. A gracious act of God. For a nation in the original context which is under incredible judgment. A gracious act of God for you and I who 3,000 years later still experience the beauty of that gift. So we have a birth of a, a child. We have a role of the child. The government shall be upon his shoulder. He will lead and rule. 
politically. That's the context of this. We have a prophecy given to Ahaz. We have a prophecy about judgment. We have a promise about a future reign. And then some names are given. Four names. They're double-barreled names. That's the way of probably describing it. Um, Double-barreled names is a good way of doing it. There's Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor. God will work through his son to demonstrate his extraordinary wisdom to plan wonderful and miraculous things. That's what the sense of this is. Wonderful counsellor. The wonderful plans are subject to a later revelation in Isaiah itself and throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And we see that in the person of Jesus. The next name is Mighty God. El Gabor means God is a mighty warrior. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Abedad, Father of Eternity, and Prince of Peace, Shah Shalom, to bring rest from enemies. They're the names that are given to the Son who will fulfill this promise. This promise was foretold back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to David. It's now restated here. This is what it will look like. On the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So peace will last for eternity on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and evermore, for the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's an act of God's grace. So there are four things that we can note here from verse 7. The sun's rule will limitlessly expand. It will keep on expanding. It will have influence and create peace without end. Isn't that a wonderful hope? When the sun returns, we'll have peace without end. It also implies this peace without end that no one will be able to successfully oppose his authority or undermine the positive effects of his government. Strong, Such strong statements here can only imply that Isaiah is talking about the final eschatological ruler, the final one to rule and to reign. Second, verse 7 tells us that on the throne of David, he will reign and reestablish his kingdom. So the ultimate fulfilment of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 concludes here with this messianic figure. 
There's debate amongst theologians whether that throne is a literal throne on earth or a throne in heaven. I'm not going to, I haven't got time to get into that today, but they are the options. Third, we see the method of ruling is based on justice and righteousness. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Justice and righteousness. And fourth, the Davidic ruler will reign forever. And finally, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God Almighty himself will do it. The promises rest on God and God's ability to perform. And because God cannot lie, God will fulfill his promise. So what does this mean to you and I? Was at this time when this prophecy was given, it was at a very different state of play. It was 740 BC. You had an evil king and you had Isaiah, a prophet. And he gave a prophecy that extends beyond our current time period. So the implication for us today is that God's promise to bring peace and justice to this world through the Messiah is also an incredibly encouraging message for us today. The Messiah came. He was born. He died. He was resurrected. He paid the price for our sin. So that one day these things could be realized. He is truly our wonderful counsellor. He truly is our mighty God. He truly is our everlasting Father. He truly is our Prince of Peace. I want to encourage you in this Christmas season not to forget these things. I want to encourage you like Isaiah to wait for the Lord, to hope and put your trust fully in him. For he has things under control. We may see things spiraling out of control every day, every week, but our God is in control. He's mighty to save. And he brought us an inheritance with his blood. And I pray that we an encouragement through this Christmas season as you consider our wonderful counsellor, our mighty God, our everlasting Father, and our Prince of Peace.